Today's global consumer is very clear in their demand for safe, affordable, and sustainable protein. To continue to meet these rising expectations requires both leadership and collaboration with food chain stakeholders, academia, and the veterinary community. Merck Animal Health is pleased to amplify the voices of leaders throughout the protein supply chain here on this podcast, caring for animals and creating trust. Hello, and thank you for joining us. I'm Jane Dukes with the Merck Animal Health Value Chain and Consumer Affairs team, and I'll be hosting today's conversation. We're going to talk about a problem today that you're probably acutely aware of if you live in rural America, and that is the critical shortage of veterinarians, both for companion animals and livestock. The next generation of veterinarians, Gen Z, are currently attending vet school, but what do they face upon graduation? Will there be enough of them? How might they change the industry? We'll dig into this topic on today's episode of Caring for Animals and Creating Trust. So let's start by setting the stage. According to the U.S. Bureau of Labor Statistics, there are over 77,000 veterinarians employed in the U.S. However, some sources say there has been a shortage of large animal veterinarians in rural areas since 2003. Experts attribute the shortage to low wages, long hours, and fewer graduates wanting to live outside a major city. This presents a problem in more ways than one since veterinarians are the first line of defense against disease. They work with farmers and ranchers throughout the animals' lives, but they also inspect livestock before they can enter the food supply. In fact, 3,200 veterinarians work for the federal government, and over half of those work for the U.S. Department of Agriculture. Their job? Keep the food supply safe. There is also a shortage of companion animal veterinarians and veterinary technicians to keep our pets healthy members of the family. According to an article in DVM 360, a few years ago there was an oversupply of veterinarians, for the number of pet owners seeking veterinary care. However, enter COVID-19 when many Americans rushed to adopt a pet as they worked from home, and the pendulum has swung back in the other direction. In 2020, pet ownership rose to 70% of American households, and the need for companion animal veterinarians is outpacing the number we are graduating from vet schools across the country. As part of Merck Animal Health's Social Responsibility Program, we have an unconditional commitment to the veterinary profession and provide over $1 million in scholarships annually, so today's topic is of great interest to us. Our guest today will shed some light on the current state of veterinary medicine, what's causing the shortages, and what can be done about it. Dr. Justin Welsh is the Executive Director of Merck Animal Health's Food Animal Technical Services Team. Dr. Carlos Risco is the Dean of the College of Veterinary Medicine at Oklahoma State University. Rebecca Barnett is Associate Director of Policy for the National Association of State Departments of Agriculture, NASDA, and she's working on a National Veterinarian Shortage Task Force. And finally, Leighton Becker is a Merck Animal Health Veterinary Student Ambassador, and he's currently attending vet school at the University of Minnesota. Welcome, everybody. We're so happy you could join us. Yeah, glad to be here, Jane. Thank you for having me, Jane. Honored to be here. I appreciate the opportunity to be here. Great. So let's begin by going around the virtual room and introducing ourselves. We'll start with you, Dr. Welsh. You've been a veterinarian for almost 30 years, and now you oversee all of the veterinarians at Merck Animal Health. Your career began as a practicing veterinarian in rural America. How have things changed over the years? You know, so much has changed, right? When I first started practice, there was a lot of focus on dispensing and providing pharmaceuticals and vaccines and that directly from the vet clinic. And so that part of the business has changed greatly. Uh, it's gone to more of a service-oriented business and, and centralized a lot. And so I'm sure we'll talk a lot about that and that's kind of the topic. But uh, those are probably some of the big changes. And, and also 
obviously recruitment. It was difficult. I was in a rural mixed animal practice that was relatively large, and uh, we always had an open door for a new practitioner to come in. So that's kind of what I've seen change. Thank you, Dr. Walsh. You know, we talked about that before we began with Dr. Risco, and he talked a little bit about recruiting as well. Dr. Risco, you've been working in higher education for more than 30 years. Congratulations. Can you tell us a little about your role as the dean of the vet school? And during your tenure, what changes have you seen in veterinary medicine education? Thank you for having me, Jane. It's a pleasure to uh, participate. So I, I see my role as the dean of the College of Veterinary Medicine here at Oklahoma State University is to promote, to advance the land-grant mission of Oklahoma State, which is a land-grant university. And that's in the area of teaching or education, research, as well as extension. So specifically in veterinary medicine, uh, it's my role to be a facilitator to prepare our graduates, not only to be competent and be ready to enter practice, but also to give them an opportunity to explore the various uh, areas in veterinary medicine that they can enter. Obviously improve animal health and welfare by incorporating cutting edge treatments and diagnostics, research in the One Health area. That's very important and it's a part of our mission in colleges of veterinary medicine, providing continuing education programs to our veterinarian and also to expand the impact of veterinary medicine globally. So engaging with memorandum of understanding with our international colleagues. In terms of what changes I have seen in my gosh, almost now 32 years as an educator, and I should say that prior to that, I was a food animal practitioner in Southern California. But let me tell you what has not changed, and that is the desire, the passion from our students over the years to become veterinarians and their innate curiosity for learning. The major changes that I have seen is the learning style of our students. I think our students, if I go back, it seems like every five years, they learn differently. And we as educators have to be cognizant of this and we must adapt. They're more visual. They want more interactive learning activities. Uh, they want to participate more. And also, we have to be very clear, not only for courses, but for individual lectures, as well as in the clinics, what are the learning objectives? This is something that I, I have seen change. I remember 10, 15, 20 years ago, we never talked about that. But now we want to be very clear. These are the learning objectives for each lecture, for each course, and also the way that we assess the knowledge of students. And then, of course, I think we have colleges of veterinary medicine in general over the past 10, 15 years are doing a good job, and we need to continue in promoting the student wellness and their well-being throughout their education. You know, you're absolutely right, and you're probably speaking directly to Dr. Welsh, he, you know, he would love to talk to you about One Health and, and promoting that. And, and Leighton is going to talk to us about what it's like to be a Gen Zer. And I'm sure that it is different now for students today than it, than it has been in the past. So thank you, Dr. Risco. Rebecca, you've been with NASDA for two years. Tell us a little bit about your role and the policy changes you're seeing. Thank you. It's a pleasure to be here. And over the last two years, I'd love to say there's been movement, but Congress just does not move quite that fast. 
But over the past year, there has been legislation on this issue to try to address it. And so that is something that NASDA has supported. But I think that's what's really important over the past two years when we look at it from a policy scope is the pandemic has really shined a light on the supply chain. And any disruptions to that is crucial to our food supply. So I think this plays a huge role in that and highlighting that and kind of giving a platform in this space to how important this issue is from a foreign animal disease outbreak standpoint. For NASDA, that has become a high priority for us. So in my role, I lead the Animal Agriculture Committee. And within that, we have great leadership across all 50 states for the directors, secretaries, and commissioners of ag. And within the state departments of agriculture, you also have the state animal health officials or the state vets. So we work closely with them on different priorities. And One Health and foreign and emerging or new animal diseases is on the top of our list. And we're going to dig into that a little bit, too you know, what the role is of the large animal veterinarian, the livestock veterinarian in keeping our food supply safe. So thank you, Rebecca. Layton, certainly, uh, last but certainly not least, you are a Merck Animal Health Veterinary Student Ambassador, and you are a Gen Zer, currently attending vet school at the University of Minnesota. Congratulations. Tell us about your role as an ambassador and where you're at in your veterinary education and your plans after graduation. Yeah, thanks again for having me. First of all, my role with Merck is actually Super, super cool. So we just got done with our summit last week, but basically we were kind of trained in and how can we bring the familiarity of Merck to our fellow students? Because we recently saw a poll and the majority of Merck products, many of vet students just don't understand or don't even know of. So it's kind of my job and kind of my role to familiarize uh, my fellow classmates with Merck product and kind of just bring some fun to uh, my fellow classmates by providing some lunches. And I'm currently going to be a third year here in vet school. And my plans after school, I truthfully am very, very passionate about food animal production. I grew up on a hog farm in southern Minnesota, and my wife's family raises a cow-calf here in uh, Princeton, Minnesota. So going off of that, I would love to go into rural mixed practice and be the modern James Harriet has always been my motto. I've I really, really would love to do something like that. Well, we're glad to hear that because we need more of you. So thank you, Leighton. Now let's dig into our topic. And we're going to start by kind of talking about how did we get here? Dr. Risco, you meet our future veterinarians when they first enter school. You've certainly seen education evolve, as you talked about. How did we get to this point where we're dealing with an international shortage of veterinarians? What is the problem from where you sit? So first, from my perspective, the shortage uh, food animal veterinarians, uh, veterinarians that go into rural communities, uh, mixed animal practice, as well as, uh, as specific in uh, food animal practices. And I think this goes back, and you cited this in, in your presentation around 2003, is when I noticed that there was change. I think it stems from there has been a change in the interests and expectations from our students. And what I have experienced is that there is a less interest in some of our incoming uh, students to enter food animal medicine. So I think that's where it stems. And that may be partly due to lack of experiences during their pre-vet program or their, their experiences. Although I do feel that food animal experience is not obligatory to enter this area after graduation, I have had a number of students that actually came from urban backgrounds 
that throughout vet school, the light bulb went on and I said, gosh, this is something that I want to do. But I think it stems from the fact that there's, a, I would say they don't have the experience. Maybe they don't have a sense of awareness of what a food ammo practice can provide both from a personal and a professional reward. And then also, of course, is the expectation, as you mentioned, you know, there's the student debt, the potential maybe for lower wages, work-life balance, and those issues. For the shortage in um, companion animals, I think it's a testament to the value of the human-animal bond. This is something that I have, in my years, I have noticed that bond has strengthened the human, the animal bond. And consequently, you know, we have more homes that have pets. As you mentioned, these pets are part of their family. I think having healthy pets also contributes to the human-animal bond. And then consequently, uh, veterinary services have increased. Perhaps, I'm sure that the COVID, the pandemic, had something to do with it, uh, maybe more pet adoption but also that during the constraints of the COVID, of the pandemic, that value, that human-animal bond, that interaction was strengthened, and it's very solid, and it will continue. Therefore, you're going to see more and more demand for veterinary service in health wellness. Right. Uh, you know, you mentioned two really important things. One is that there's maybe a lack of awareness or a lack of experience on the part of the students. I think that kind of follows that, you know, consumers are now three to four generations removed from the farm. So our younger generation is also further removed from the farm. And the one thing that has changed over the course of the last 50 to 100 years is that pets are members of the family and they're in the home. And, and to your point, yes, there is a very strong human-animal bond. So thanks, Dr. Risco. Dr. Welsh, you started your career as a practicing veterinarian, and, and now you have a very big job of overseeing all the veterinarians at Merck. You mentioned to me in a previous conversation that the problem might be one of basic economics. Can you expand on that? Yeah, within my team, and, and that probably gives a little background on where I come from and, and what my team does, is you know, we, we serve the livestock community. I have veterinarians and nutritionists that work in the cattle, swine, and poultry world. So a lot of them are geographically located in these areas. In fact, a lot of the team members that I have came from rural practice. And so they have a direct connection there. And so we've had long discussions about this, you know, what, what is really happening? And as I thought about this, this podcast and what you wanted, there's a really good analogy that I'm learning that probably describes a lot of what's happening. And that is rural connectivity with broadband, with how, you know, our phones work and those kind of things. And, and so I did a little research. So I learned the holy grail of rural connectivity is Fiber optic costs about $10 a foot in a urban community to place a, a fiber optic. And it costs about $8 per foot, linear foot, to place it in a rural community because obviously not as many streets and all that. And so the urban community, that $10 a foot can potentially serve hundreds of thousands of people. It costs way more to get to the end of the line to serve maybe hundreds of people. And so I use that as an analogy because I think it describes a lot of what's happening with rural vet practice. You know, the further you get into the rural community, the less business 
frankly, that there is. And the work-life balance can be challenging. You're the man. And I heard him mention James Harriet, and, and, you know, I've read all the books too. And, and he was the, the person on call 24-7. And you can have a great life, very slow pace sometimes, and, you know, living in the countryside. But that call at one o'clock can get kind of old. And sometimes that's that can be a big detractor over the long haul for a lot of veterinarians. And so that's really kind of what I was going with, with the, the basic economics part of it. So hopefully that kind of described with, the, with my little analogy there, yeah. what, how that works. That was a great analogy. And, and it, it is, it would be tough to be the only veterinarian in 150 square mile. And, you know, Leighton has talked about he wants to go into a mixed animal practice. He's going to be really busy, you know, when he enters the work world. So thanks, Dr. Welsh. The USDA reported in 2019 that there were 500 counties in the U.S. that were underserved by veterinarians and shortages in 44 states. That was the highest number reporting shortages since they started tracking. This is an ongoing pain point for the industry. There are also veterinary deserts where a single vet may oversee 150 square miles, both for livestock and companion animals. And it's a tough life, adding to the pressure rise we've talked about is the rising debt load that's outpacing increases in starting salaries for veterinarians, and, and the pay is higher for the suburban companion animal vets than in those rural areas. Dr. Welsh, do you think newly graduated students are prepared for what they face in rural America? Um, possibly. Uh, you know, I think in certain cases, absolutely. Like Leighton said, a lot of that depends on how you grew up, and kind of a tongue-in-cheek statement is, is to work on large animals, uh, you've got to know where to stand so to speak, and not get hurt, right? And that can be a barrier a lot of times to individuals going into that line of work. And and also it's very physical, right? There's a lot of repetitive physical tasks, squeezing your hands, a lot of carpal tunnel syndrome, a lot of shoulder problems in older veterinarians. The good news is, is technology is going to help us a lot there. And I think that's a big part of potentially attracting more people into rural practices is ultrasound, for example. You know, I used to preg 30, 40,000 head of cows a year with my arm, and that's not easy. And ultrasound, it's not as physical, right? It does a lot of good and has a high quality work. A lot of things around technology, and when you talk about rural connectivity and all that, I think in the future are going to be very big around that. And we need Gen Z to, to help us old guys get through that and learn how to use those technologies, right? And, and I, I think those offer a great potential resource and are already starting to do some great things that help these rural veterinarians be much, much more efficient with how they practice. And, and my, my contention has been that since the beginning of time with veterinarians, we've always practiced telehealth. Sometimes it was just with a telephone. Now that's advanced, right? Now we've got huge advancements in that. And so we're navigating how that works. So I think there's a lot of things that can happen in the education process that gets a student better prepared for rural practice. And, and so I'm, I'm excited about that. You know, not to keep belaboring the point, but there's also some, I, I would call them experiments going on with this, right? Texas Tech has opened up a new vet school that their hands-on curriculum is a lot in clinics. Uh, they, they push it out to these rural veterinarians and these students go spend time with them and learn the, the day-to-day tasks and learn what it's going to be like. So they, their expectations are managed uh, when they graduate. And so I like the idea of that. We'll see how it works. Uh, not by any means a successful program yet, but I like the idea. 
Right. Uh, Dr. Risco, are you seeing similar things at Oklahoma State or in, in other, I'm sure you talk to other deans of other vet schools and talking about technology and and uh, really bringing technology to the rural veterinary practices and also to the farms. Uh, yes, absolutely. And Dr. Welsh makes some, some excellent points on how can we prepare our students better. I would add two things. One is I totally agree that it's critical for a, a student in, during their, their first three years and certainly their, on their fourth year that has an interest in food animal medicine is to do externship or clerkship with private practices. I think that that's a, that's a fundamental part of their education because by doing so, they will not only uh, experience the medical side of it, but they learn the experience firsthand, the work-life balance of these practitioners, and they can see what they're getting into. So it's, it becomes almost like an experiential opportunity. And I always recommend it to my students that were interested. I would say you need to spend time in a private practice, in a rural practice, whether it's food animal or whether it's mixed animal. Uh, so that's very important. The other point that I would like to add is as we look at our production units, dairy, swine, beef, they're expanded. They're larger. They use more technology. It's finance driven. So one of the questions that I ask is, are we preparing our students that are going to go into food animal practice to meet the expectations of those producers that goes beyond treatment and diagnosis? So, for example, herd health, employee training, facility designs, animal wellness, all of these components are expectations that this newer, if you will, perhaps I'll use the word modern producers expect of their veterinarians. In colleges of veterinary medicine, it's a little bit challenging because we're limited, of course, with the curriculum and the credit hours that we provide, but we need to start thinking about elective courses. Uh, we need to think about programs such as the, for example, uh, I'm not excluding anyone, but the Cornell Summer Dairy Institute for students. And certainly the AABP, American Association of Bovine Practitioners, does have some wonderful programs for the new graduates to kind of, you know, prepare and bring in an added training that they would bring this added value to these producers. Because don't forget that that industry is going to continue to grow. It's going to continue to expand with technology. So we need to prepare our students that are going to go into that area to be versatile and to be knowledgeable to provide those services. Rebecca, NASDA has press releases that have been referencing veterinarian shortages dating back over 10 years, adding to the problem where the number of rural veterinarians reaching retirement age and leaving a practice with no one to fill their shoes. How has NASDA been involved in supporting the search for a solution to this shortage? Well, thank you for that question. NASDA has had the great opportunity recently to join a national task force that's led by the Farm Journal Foundation. We kind of play a critical role in that piece with who our members are and having the state vets underneath or in the Department of Agriculture. So what we're really kind of looking at is what are those career opportunities for those students as they come out of vet school? But also, what is the demand coming into vet school and what does that look like? And are we serving that from the beginning point to the end point? 
And then within it, we're looking at different programs and support opportunities, whether that's the federal level from USDA and their different programs, or their state programs across the nation that can kind of supplement that or help that, or what are some pivot points that we can kind of, or pinch points, help weave through so students have access to both and can utilize both. And then also looking even further to community partnerships, what are other stakeholders that are affected by the shortage and how can they come in and kind of play a role? So it's kind of a whole picture that we're looking in to kind of have everyone come together and collaborate on this issue. Because looking forward, this is a huge concern, not only to our food supply, but that's just a national security. It raises up to that standpoint. So for us, this is really important um, and looking at all aspects of ways that we can help these students. Sure, and it, it's not like you become a veterinarian overnight. So we're facing the issue today, and it takes, you know, four to six years to get a, a student through vet school. Um, so thanks, Rebecca. I look forward to talking about that more. Leighton, one of the factors that may cause students to think twice about vet school, I know it was one that my daughter considered, is a fear of significant debt load upon graduation. On average right now, they say that a student graduating from vet school is in debt over $140,000. Is this something that you worry about? And, and do you have friends who maybe decided not to pursue veterinary medicine because of the cost of education? Well, Jane, I think it would be really nice if you could become a, a vet overnight. But it's actually really, really crazy how expensive vet school is. Like, it just kind of puts you at a loss of words. I mean, it looks at my tuition is close to, what, $20,000 a semester. I mean, that, that's a significant amount of money that you have to find a way to pay off, whether that be if you have the money now or, you know, later on in your career choice. And for me, yeah, we're just looking to how do you find a way to do that? And most of the time it's student loans. And thankfully, there's been some pretty good interest rates. And I mean, it's, it's we're making through and people have done it before. But just I'll go rewind and go to my undergrad where I was with a variety of pre-vet students. And yes, cost was a deterring factor for many people that were passionate. And the unfortunate part is most of my friends that were tracking animal science pre-vet and wanting to become a large animal veterinarian were people from farms, were people that would have been interested in large animal medicine, but just could not find a way to, or they would see the price tag and, you know, like we're at the store and put it back on the shelf. So, you know, I, I, I can't afford that. I would love to do it. All of them say that, but it is a lot of money. So, And that's a, that's a shame. And, you know, one of the suggested solutions throughout the years has been tuition forgiveness. And in fact, the USDA has a loan forgiveness program, although I think they give away 50 awards per year. That may not do very much or enough. And the um, American Veterinary Medical Association also announced a program this year to provide 25000 a year for student loan repayment in exchange for service in USDA-designated veterinarian shortage situations. So... Moving on a little bit, let's talk about Gen Z. We'll pull Leighton back in here. Millennials and Gen Zs are just different from other generations. I have one millennial. I have two Gen Zs. Just between my own children, I see the differences. You know, life on the farm as, as a rural veterinarian may be different than what a lot of students are accustomed to. Leighton, does Gen Z have different expectations around quality of life? And could that be keeping some students from pursuing careers in livestock medicine? Um, I would totally agree. Just speaking from most of my classmates, we have 100 in our class at Minnesota, and I would say that I am very, very much in the minority, so I get to hear a lot of what their perception of large animal practice is, and it's, you know, the 
super crazy long hours and getting beat up all the time, which it kind of sort of is. But at the same time, I think that there's a lot of negative connotations towards agriculture as a whole, not just veterinary medicine within, you know, our, my generation. And it's really, really challenging because I'm very passionate about agriculture as a whole. I love veterinary medicine, but I just love agriculture as a whole. So I, I literally feel like I have to convince them to like or even want to be large animals. That's been, it's just not very successful. But yeah, a lot of the times that keep them away is that negative connotation of, you know, I have to work all these hours, I have to do all this work, or I could sit in a clinic and get paid maybe a little bit more and have people come to me. I, ne- I don't have to spend hours behind a truck driving around. So for a lot of people, it's those types of things that kind of push them away. But then they'll be dealing with pet owners and that could be more more complicated. But this brings us full circle back to the fact that, you know, we're so far removed from the farm. And, and Rebecca, does NASDA look at that? Like, how do we communicate with consumers today who would include, you know, these kids going into vet school? How do we communicate about animal agriculture and, and, and what it's all about? Thank you for that question. And I think um, one thing that this conversation has kind of sparked in my mind is really telling that message of how important rural veterinarians are to the food supply and just all across and just even the economic importance to rural communities that they impact that they have. I think that's so important that we stress this to Congress and just to consumers in general so that we could get movement in this area and help and support. I also think when we we share the message kind of in the science space, we get very deep in the how-to of things. And I think we need to get more towards the why are things so important. So consumers take that in and they understand more of why it's so important to have veterinarians and the science behind that. But it's so important that we connect with them and we explain that and the importance and the why we do what we do. I think that's really important. That's really good to hear. So we're running a little bit over. I'm going to throw out one last question and, and then we'll call it a day. Is there a silver bullet to solving this veterinary shortage? Dr. Risco, I'll start with you. Thank you, Jane. Actually, I, I don't have a silver bullet. I think we're looking at the, the, the two shortages, on the food animal side, and then we're looking at the companion animal side. And so then the companion animal side, two things. One is maybe the increase in class size will help, but also the, the other component is that the expectations of, of new veterinarians in this companion animal practices of promoting the work-life balance. So we, whether we're in academia or whether we're in private practice, we have got to consider that it's not just the salary, it's not just the benefits, but it's how do we promote the work-life balance of the new graduates. I think on the food animal side, you know, many of our challenges, many of our issues that we discuss, we just need to keep working together and hopefully have a have a solution. That's great. And and Rebecca Working together is what you're all about on NASDA and, and with this uh, task force. Do you want to weigh in? Thanks. That's an excellent question. And I don't think there's really particularly one silver bullet. I think that to the point, it's going to take a lot of stakeholders coming together in collaboration. It's going to take the vet school. It's going to take our stakeholders at the state level, state vets, the federal level, everyone kind of coming together, looking at this picture and seeing what role do they play and what solution can they offer? And I think this is a multilateral um, with a lot of different moving pieces within it 
that we can approach it in that way as well with our solutions to try to solve this. I just don't think there's one solution that fits all. And so it's just going to take everyone coming together on this. That's right. We all have to pull together. Leighton, uh, if you could peer into the future through a crystal ball, what do you think your generation is going to bring to the veterinary field? I think that you're going to be pretty surprised. Truthfully, I've never been more proud of the, the classmates that I am going to vet school with. As of starting this third year, we're going to be all back 100% in person, getting to meet one another. And just from what I've heard, just from what I've seen, for the conversations I've had, we have some pretty smart and really passionate people. And a variety, equine, small animal, large animal. And they are really rear and ready to get out there. And I'm really, really excited to see what we're going to do. Like what Dr. Welsh was talking about, technology is going to be our bread and butter. I think that our generation is going to, as much slack that we get from being on our phones all the time, I think we're going to be able to really, really be able to connect those two sides. And it's going to be really, really cool to see in 20, 30 years to see where we're going to be. So I'm really excited. Well, we're looking forward to that. So we never expect to solve the world's problems during our podcast, but this conversation has been very enlightening to say the least. A huge thank you to my guests for sharing their knowledge with us today. Hopefully by working together, we can help resolve the veterinarian shortage. Thanks also to our listeners for joining us on Caring for Animals and Creating Trust. We'd love for you to rate, review, or subscribe so you never miss a podcast. In the meantime, we look forward to a bright future in veterinary medicine led by Gen Z. Best of luck to you, Leighton, and we'll see you all next month.